Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. This week we're going to look at these first two words given to God's people. I'm going to group them up as one commandment, though, because, yes, we're breaking all of the rules. Last week, this was kind of our big idea. The law is completed and fulfilled in Christ, but God does still use His law primarily in three ways. And we looked at these three ways, and this is a little bit how we're going to structure our time together. The first of these is that with the law, we are condemned. Oftentimes, we can read the Bible and it says, you shall do this. And we automatically assume, well, if we shall, then we can and we will. And then we fail and we suddenly realize, oh, I shall doesn't mean I can. And it's like a hard stone tablet to the head sometimes, isn't it? And so the, one of these first uses, one of the first ways that God uses the law is that he condemns us with it. Another way is that he holds back evil in the world. Um, whether it be these laws or other laws that we read in Scripture or things that we can all just generally agree on, that murdering someone else is a bad thing, right? Murdering someone else is a bad thing. Taking someone else's life for no good reason or for a greedy reason or a selfish reason especially is a very bad thing. Almost everyone that isn't insane agrees upon this. And so as we look through God's law and as we look through these Ten Commandments, we're going to see that there are certain laws in here, certain words in here that encourage us. Um, that encourage us to restrain the evil that is in us. And it's God's word that's actually being spoken to us. It's being spoken and then uh, worked in us by God the Holy Spirit to, to restrain evil and hold it back. And we know that God does this in our world as well. There are many awful things going on in the world. And yet things could always be worse. I don't just mean that on a personal level. Today could be the worst day of your life, or tomorrow could be, or yesterday might have been. But things could always be worse as we look out into the world. And to think that things could be worse is a pretty horrifying thing. And so we can be thankful for God's law in that way, that it restrains, that it holds back the evil inside you and me and inside those around us. And then lastly, two weeks ago, we looked at the book of Galatians, and Paul said that the law was a schoolmaster. It was a teacher. It was a guide to us until Jesus fulfilled it all. Um, And so the law is to us a guide and a schoolmaster. It's not the be-all and end-all by a living according to the law. We're not going to save ourselves like the rich young ruler assumed that he would, if he just followed the exact words on the page and didn't think about how it could be built out, what we're going to be doing a little bit this morning, he said, yes, yes, I followed all of these commands since my youth. 
And yet he couldn't give up his one God, right? So in a similar way here, the the law, it teaches us and it guides us. And God the Holy Spirit uses this law in our lives to, to teach us and to guide us into being more like and acting more like Christ. Despite the fact that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we might not always say, yeah, you know what, 2019 was a great year. I think I grew a lot. And yet usually, <laughs> usually if, if you are a Christian, people, other people in your life can look at you and say, yeah, no, you actually did grow a lot in 2019. You did. You were more patient. You were more kind. These fruit of the Spirit grew in you. And this is one of the ways that God the Holy Spirit uses the law in our lives to teach us, to guide us, and to direct us. But always to teach us, to guide us, and direct us back to Christ. To point us not to how righteous we should be, but where our true righteousness is. And to point us back to Christ and to say, yes, do these good things that I have laid out before you. And yet know that these good things aren't going to save you. That only Christ does that. And so this week, we have another big idea. In Jesus You have been freed from worshiping other gods. And he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, you have been freed from worshiping other gods. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The one good way that I think is that we should be thinking about this, these first two commandments um, is that it's said like this. Last week we, we talked about how in the book of Exodus, the law is coming right on the heels of God's people being rescued from slavery in Egypt. And how do we know that? Well, we know that from what we studied last week in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The very first word that God speaks is not a law, but a declaration to say, you are mine. I saved you. I took you out of slavery. And in so many ways, we're going to find out later that this slavery wasn't just slavery in that there were people being worked to death, right? Although that was a huge part of it. There's other forms of slavery taking place in Egypt where little by little, God's people are turning away from Him. And they're they're turning towards the Egyptian gods. And they're looking for salvation from them. And later on in Israel's history, when they've given up hope that this good and gracious God who feeds them each and every day miraculously, this good and gracious God that gave them water out of a rock, this good and gracious God that saved them out of slavery, well, he's just not doing anything for us. And they start turning back to the gods of Egypt. See, Christian, for you and for me, even today, we love so many different things, right? We love so many different things. And one preacher said it like this, that these Ten Commandments and really all of God's law is is God saying to you and to me and to God's first people that He freed us out of slavery. And now, here's some words I'm giving to you to help you live freely. 
not to go back into slavery. Not to be going back to those gods that were going to enslave you and bring you down and always you were going to be working for them, sacrificing to them, trying to give all of yourself that you reasonably could to them and still have your life now and then hopefully have it later. And so these words are here um, to remind us that we are free and to help us to live freely. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And what's the second part of that first word then? You shall have no other gods before me. And remember last week we talked about this is in front of my face, right? It doesn't mean that if you have other gods, they can be second place next in the queue. It means that you shall have no other gods before my face. Now, for Israel, this was going to be a difficult thing. Right after Moses brings these laws down from the mountain, what happens? Right? We're going to get to images here in just a second. But Israel looked around them and they said, wow, look at this amazing scene of nature up on this mountain, right? Moses, remember, he went up on this mountain and God said, don't let anyone else follow you up here. No, no sheep, no cattle, none of that. Go on up by yourself. You can bring some of the elders halfway up if you want to. But as he's going up, everyone is fearful of going up because there's lightning, there's wind, there's thunder, there's earthquakes, there's storm. It's horrifying. And so what do the people of Israel do? They look around and they say to themselves, that is horrifying. You know what? That God scares me. <laughs> that God scares me. In fact, that God scares me so much, I would like to um, honor this God our God who saves us out of slavery, out of, out of the house of Egypt, I want to honor him by giving him a shape. I want to give him a shape because um, this storm, I'm not walking into this storm all the time to meet our God. So let's create a shape for ourselves. Let's take some gold and we're going to make a cow. Where'd they get all this gold from, remember? I love this. I love this part of the story. Because not only... Did God free his people from Egypt and out of slavery? But do you remember that there were actually Egyptians that turned from their false gods and from their Pharaoh and, and followed the Israelites and brought with them all of the spoils that they could muster up from their nation? Even here, God is bringing non-Jews, Gentiles to himself. And he's saying, yes, follow me. You're enslaved too. You might not even know it. Follow me. I'm taking you to freedom. And so we could go on then to the second commandment or the second part of this, this commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love 
to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, let's go back to that first commandment for just a minute. Because I hope, I'm looking out at everyone, I I know most of you fairly well, and I would hope that you're not going home at night and worshiping some other god, right? This seems like a pretty simple thing. Strangely enough, I was just, uh, a couple months ago, I read a really good book. The author, he was, um, what, what do we call him? I don't know. He was an agnostic. He claims to not believe in anything, right? And it was still, it was a very fine book. Good book, I enjoyed it. And yet, at the end of the book, he was so resolute that he would not believe in anything. And yet, throughout the entirety of this book, I'm reading it, and it's a book of all law. It's do this and you'll be a good leader. Do this and you'll be a good man. Do this and you'll be able to um, accomplish these things in your life. And yet everything that he was listing out in the book was so based upon these commandments right here. You know, be moral. Don't kill people. Don't steal from people. Be, if you desire to be respected, be respectable, right? Telling you how to live. And so I thought, no, you know, I'll look this guy up because... I want to know what his background actually is. And um, interestingly enough, now he claims that he is a pagan. He doesn't claim to be agnostic anymore. He realizes that you can't live life without believing in something, without trusting in something. And so he has chosen to believe in old Norse gods like Thor and Odin, these gods of war and rage. And I just find this to be hilarious. That he would preach things about morals and yet have these scandalous gods that do not care about murder or theft or honor or respect, but thrive and feed off solely death. It's an interesting thing. See, we will do anything in the world that we can to run away from God and to be held in our slavery. In one moment we will say, God does not exist, no God exists, and then we will turn around and we will create a God in our own image, right? This is exactly what Adam and Eve tried to do. They looked around them and they said, hey, we're, we're created in the image of God, and Satan says, yes, you are. Now, you could be more like him, though, you know that. And so what do they do? They say, yeah, you know what, I, I think I... I love God, I respect God, and yet I think there's this little part of me that I could, I, could, I could keep for myself, that I could set aside and be more knowledgeable about, and I, I can be my own boss. God will be my boss, but I'll be my own boss too. Right? This is what Adam and Eve said. And they took the fruit and they ate of it, and then suddenly their eyes were opened. And they realized that they weren't just trying to keep a little piece of themselves. They were trying to take all of themselves out of relationship with God. They were trying to make themselves their own gods. They were not trying to live up to the image that they had been given. They were looking at their images and they were saying, that's the kind of God that I want. And we all tend towards this. And yet, as we discussed this week, and as we just said, this is slavery. This is, this is 
the constant need to work for your own righteousness and your own salvation and to lift yourself up above all things. So practically speaking, though, we, we should ask, okay, well, wait, I don't worship Thor. <laughs> I, I, I don't have like some sun god that I look to or anything like that. And yet, interestingly enough, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's stop there for just one second. Because this is where it gets really important. Um, you know, so often, me personally, now that some people are much more in touch with their emotions, okay, with, with their feelings, and they're able to not only be in touch with them in a good way, but able to express those things in healthy ways. Before I got married, that was not me, okay? And pretty much on a daily basis, I have to say, hey, Tara, is that the way that I meant to say that? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how to use words always in a helpful and healthy way. And yet, um, I think part of that is because I, I just, I think everything, right? I got a head up here and I think that this head controls everything that I do and that I'm very logical and that I make decisions and that those decisions are actually what's going on inside of me. When the reality is that throughout all of Scripture, never, hardly ever, do, do, we do see a renewing of the mind that needs to take place, right? And yet, we don't ever see, um, I think, therefore, I am, as one philosopher said. Almost always, it's you're desirous of something, you want something so bad, therefore, that's what you are. This is what Scripture gives to us. That where your treasure is, there your heart is. Or rather, if you wanted to reverse engineer that, if you wanted to take it apart and rebuild it, you could said, whatever treasure your heart is set on, that's the treasure you're going after. And that is your God. That is your idol. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if, you, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, uh, sorry, then, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For, neither he, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, for instance, God and money. But money is a pretty good stand-in for anything else, right? I'm, I'm not saying that this is my God, but I've always wanted a, a really fancy Swedish-made axe by this one craftsman, okay? And they cost way too much money. I could never afford it. But I'll tell you what, if I ever got that axe for chopping down trees, right? I would never put it to a tree. It's too beautiful to put to a tree. 
And if anyone came to my house and we were having a bry and they took that axe and they said, oh, hey, wait, I split the wood for us. I would say, whoa, what axe did you use? Why did you do that? Right? It, it could be the object that you want with the money. It could be the security that you think the money is going to offer you. Whatever the case may be, money is a good stand-in here for these gods that we build up around ourselves. And so no, it's not just these, um, you know, I, I hate, I don't know the best way to say it, make-believe gods out there in the world, these rulers and these principalities that, that are around us to, to helping us to deceive ourselves, like Thor, right? It, it's the pocketbook. It's the axe, it's the boat, it's the house, it's the car. It's the next level of life that you want to attain. In fact, I was, uh, I hate Facebook, and yet sometimes I find myself on Facebook because Facebook every day tells me what I should remember from last year and 10 years ago, and it spits all kinds of pictures up at me that I would never remember, and I need Facebook for that because I have no visual memory, okay? So I need Facebook for my visual memory, and I use it for that. But then just the other day, I was on there, and a pastor... Uh, that I know his picture popped up and it said what I'm looking forward to in 2020. And it was like an open Bible. I was like, cool. And then it was another picture. And it, these were all pictures that he's hoping for in 2020. And the other one was a stack of American dollars, okay? Um, just on top of a desk. And it was like this. It was, I don't know if it was like a drug deal gone bad. I don't know what the situation was. And then it was like a trip to France with wine, and then it was, I can't remember what the four, there are four pictures, okay? There are four pictures. And this is what he was looking forward to in 2020. It was interestingly enough, though, I mean, oh, it was a crowd of people. That was the fourth one. It was a crowd of people. Like this, except for bigger and looking at him. What does this tell you about what this man's God is? Is it the money? Is it the fame? Is it the luxury? I don't know. But all of it allegedly flows from the word for him. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Therefore, a lot of detail here, but we're going to just hit on one part of this passage. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. What's Paul arguing about here? Because some of us, we would look around and we would say, no, no, I, I know people and they've worshipped things and these things have, have got them something in life. Um, you know, we could look at it, we could just say that these are uh, forces of evil. These are Satan's minions. These are demonic forces. Whatever the case may be, what Paul is arguing about here in saying that these gods aren't real is saying these gods are no match for our God. These things aren't gods. These are created things. Whether they are real or they are made up out of a person's own image of themselves and what they want to be worshiping, whatever the case may be, Paul says these so-called gods have no real existence. Um, for although they may be, they may be 
so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." And so there we have a good picture of what Paul thinks about these other gods running around out there in the world. Now let's get to this carving of images, shall we? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Okay, if I were to stop just previous to that, you shall, you shall not make any images, so on and so forth. Um, Derek, I hate to say it, but you'd be in big trouble, because I've been to your house, and I know that you're an artist, and I know that you do really nice pictures of, uh, I forget the last one I saw the other day, but I've seen many pictures of animals in your house. So in that case, Derek, whoa, he's broken the command many times over. He even makes little statues. I've seen this, right? <laughs> but why are we allowed to have art, right? Why are we allowed to have pictures of something? Why am I allowed to have this newfangled thing called a camera on my phone and take picture of anything that I want to take picture of? Well, that's because as we go into verse 9, I'm in Deuteronomy chapter 5 now, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So the second part of this command, or the second command here, the second word, is the focus of it is not technically on the image itself, but on the worship. This is about how we worship. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What does this mean? Well, jealous. You know, sometimes we like to walk away from this word jealous and say, well, no, our God would never be so petty as to be jealous. Um, and yet, uh, this is exactly what we're talking about. Okay? Um, th this is not necessarily an attribute of God in the sense that uh, God is just and He is righteous. Nothing like that. What this is is a description in fact, what is the most common thing uh, in the New Testament that we're related to Christ as? His bride, right? His body. And so when we're, we're seeing this thing about God being jealous, what are we actually talking about? Well, imagine this. Um, we're not talking about a silly kind of jealousy where you see a husband and a wife and um, every time the husband talks to Another woman, the wife goes, and you know, she's got the eyes out, she's looking at him, she's doing one of these to him, something like this. Okay, that would be an outrageous kind of jealousy. That's not the, the petty kind of jealousy that we're talking about. We're talking about if a husband were to, and we've all seen this too, never talk to his wife and always talk to another woman. If she were jealous about that, that would make a whole lot of sense, actually. She would be zealous and desirous of her husband and zealous for not wanting him to go off and to be a fool in the world. 
In a similar way, this is more the kind of jealousy that we're talking about. Because interestingly enough, when, God, when Moses comes off the mountain and he's bringing down the tablets and he says, hey guys, look what I got. And he sees that there's an idol down there. They, before he could even tell them what not to do, he comes down and they've already done it. It's like there was a wedding up on the mountain and before the wedding night was over, the wife had cheated on someone else with someone else. This is the kind of jealousy that God has. He says, no, 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 no. I rescued you. I am your God. You are my people. You don't need to run back into slavery. Come to me. Find safety and shelter and security in me. When your enemies come, that golden statue can do nothing for you but get stolen and probably get you killed. In this way, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right. I, don't, I only have a couple of minutes here, so let's make this quick. Uh, we could go to Ezekiel 18. And in Ezekiel 18, you have this, this situation taking place. God's people, they've been kicked out of the land. And still, even though they've been kicked out of the land and they made their home somewhere else, and there's a hope that they're going to get brought back into the land one day soon, um, everyone's looking around and said, you know what? If our fathers had been more obedient to God's law, and it, it, this isn't even our fault. This isn't our fault. We didn't do anything wrong. You know who did it? The generation, three and four back, they did it. They were wrong. And Ezekiel corrects them there. Uh, this is not what this passage is talking about. Uh, what does he say? For those who hate me. Um, it is true, we know this, that typically the home that you are raised in, those are the gods that you take on, that you adopt for yourself whether it be a god of money or an actual statue sitting in front of you, whatever the case may be. These are the gods that we adopt and that we take for ourselves. And, and this is what Moses, this is what God is talking about here. These were written, uh, we're going to read later on next week, by the finger of God in stone. God himself is saying this. He's saying, look, if you turn away from me now, your children are going to keep turning and your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren, and your great-great-grandchildren, they're all going to turn from me. Understand my words to you. I am your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't turn around and go back to it. In Jesus, you have been freed from worshiping other gods. And he is the image of the invisible God. Why did we read that Colossians passage this morning? You are not to make an image of your God. And I love this in the Old Testament. I love this command. Why? I, okay, I'll give you two examples. One is a crucifix. Okay? 
Now, you might see a crucifix and think, well, that's Catholic. I'm not Catholic. I don't know why we would need a crucifix. I'm not saying we need a crucifix. But you know what a crucifix is? It's a statue of Jesus on the cross with blood coming out of him. It's a reminder to you that Christ died for you. And now there are some people that sinfully look at the crucifix and pray to it and think that somehow this little statuette is like a channel. It's a phone call to God. It's a phone call to Christ on their behalf. And yet, the whole idea of Jesus being made into this little statue, I'm actually, I'm not going to say anything about it. Um, Because you know why? A lot of people have nativities out in front of their church at Christmas time with a little baby Jesus. Frankly, it's no different. You're still making the image. Uh, I read to my kids these storybook Bibles that have Jesus pictured and he's walking down the road. And I'm not going to stop reading the storybook Bibles to the kids, right? Just because there's a picture of Jesus there. Why, is that, why could that be different? Well, a couple. I'm going to give you two reasons why it could be different. Although this is a matter of conscience that you should also decide for yourself. Here's one way that it could be different. And that is that um, Jesus himself took on flesh, right? He added to all of his divinity full humanness. And so we make pictures, we take pictures of humans all the time. I don't think that we can assume that we know how Jesus looked or how he looked on the cross even. And I think that there are some ways that um, Jesus pictured on the cross is a very bad thing. And yet, if I'm going to say that it's always a bad thing, I'm also going to say, well, you better get rid of all the baby Jesuses I see. All right? Okay, so I'm being a little bit silly about that, but hear me, um, because this is important. When it comes to why would God say, don't make an image of me? Because God's first people, they're standing around looking at every other tribe in the whole world, and they're saying, they've got an image of their God. They've got an image of their God. They've got an image of their God. And this was the amazing thing. When um, the Persians came into Jerusalem and they broke open the temple and they started tearing everything down and they went into the Holy of Holies, and there they saw... No statue. They say, these fools, they don't even know what their God looks like. Why would would God say, don't make an image? I honestly think one of the reasons why he would say this to us is because he was going to perfectly give us a picture of himself in the person and work of Jesus. His birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the promise of his coming again. Jesus is the image of the invisible God for us. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.